0: Church, we are going to be reading from the book of James, chapter 2. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated against yourself and because and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him, but have you insulted the poor? Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin. You are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. For wherever you keep the whole law and yet stumbles, at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, Also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, have you become a lawbreaker? Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment.
1: What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead.
2: Thank you, guys. May God bless the reading of His word. we're in the third week of our series going through the letter of James, and this week we're in chapter 2 as we just read, and each week we're reading through the passage as we go. Uh, i mentioned this the first week that when this letter would have been received by the churches, they would have taken time, they would have stood up, and they would have read the letter in its entirety, and they would have talked about it. And so we're doing something similar here. We're not reading the entire letter at once, but we're reading those sections, and we're going to spend some time talking about it. If you've got your Bible, I encourage you to open up to James. We're going to be jumping around in chapter 2. And if you don't know where that is, it's towards the end. But if you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. And as we're studying this book of James, James wants us to understand that our relationship with Christ has so much more to do than uh, just a feeling. And it's so much more than just knowing intellectually the right things. It has to be, as the subtitle of our series says, a faith that works. It has to be faith in action. And James wants us to see that true faith is something that's lived out. It's not just a decision you make, it's a life that you lead. So today we're going to look at the entire chapter of second, or the second chapter of James. We've got a lot of ground to cover, but before we go any further, I'd like us just to go and spend a moment in prayer. God, we thank you for this letter that we've been reading from your half-brother that reminds us, Lord, that challenges us. Uh, to have a faith that works, a faith that lives out, a faith that others can see and grab a hold of. Not so that we can feel good about ourselves and not so that people can look at us and hold us in esteem, but so they can see Jesus through us. That's what this is all about, Lord, is people seeing you working in our lives and that drawing them close to you. Lord, I pray that as we look at this chapter here, as we talk about some things that are often uh, confusing sometimes, but also challenging, Lord, that our hearts would be open to hear the message you have for us. I believe that this letter is written for us to be able to take a hold of and to walk out of here, applying it to our lives in a way uh, that causes us to live it out. So Lord, be with me as I speak. Be with our hearts as we listen. God, interpret whatever it is that I might say to the words that our hearts need to hear to draw closer to you and to be people who live out their faith in action. And all God's people together said, amen. Well, on Friday, over this weekend, I was sitting at Rockford Ridge. You guys know that drive-in here in town. And my daughter, Sianna, she works there. She's one of the servers. And we were uh, parked there, and we, uh, I don't, we don't normally frequent there. But, you know, when your daughter works there, you want to go give her a big tip. And so, uh, so we were getting a tasty milkshake. If you haven't had their milkshakes, I encourage you to try them and a hamburger. We've been there for a while and just hanging out. And, uh, and someone suggested that we turn off the car. Um, because, you know, the, the engine was running and, it was, you know, we had the radio on and all that. Oh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So, you know, I backed the key out and turned off the ignition, of course. But I, I, I wanted to leave the radio on. That also left the lights on and the fan blowing. We were there for a while. And when it was time to, for us to take our daughter home, uh, we realized something. I went to go and I, I did that little crank and all I heard was... Yeah, you know that terrible sound when your car won't start. And I had killed the battery. The battery was dead. Uh, And today, James has something he wants to say to us that may help us to jumpstart our dead batteries. Because he wants to talk about when something's dead, it doesn't have, uh, it isn't able to function the way that it's supposed to. So we're going to start in chapter 2, but we're going to do this a little different. We're going to look at the second half of chapter 2 first and work our way backwards. So the second section of James, if you're following along in your Bible, it would start uh, about verse 14. This section of James has caused some confusion with some. as It might appear if you've grown up in church or if you've paid attention to Scripture for very long, you might have heard some words of Paul that sound exactly the opposite of what James is saying. And some people will say this actually uh, is a place where the Bible has some discrepancy, where they're not lining up with each other, that Paul and James are saying opposite things about your faith. But as we're going to see here, that's just not the case. So Paul says in Romans chapter 3, he says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And he says in Ephesians, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So, of course, when you read that and you don't know the context of what Paul is talking about and the context of what we're talking about in James, you might say, wait a minute, this sounds like they're contradicting each other. But often people will forget to read the very next verse in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 10, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we're not going to spend a lot of time trying to to deconstruct this whole faith versus works thing this morning, but when we look at both James and Paul, we actually see that they're talking about the same thing. They're talking about what's often referred to as two sides of the same coin, and much of the confusion comes when we don't take a look at the big picture of what they are saying. So James isn't saying in the passage that the O'Neill's just read for us that doing good deeds or doing works, as your translation might say, gets you into heaven, All throughout Scripture, we're told that salvation comes from one place only. Is it from the work that we do? No, it only comes from God. It's a gift that's been given to all who call upon the name of the Lord. So James isn't saying that your deeds save you because Jesus saves you. He's saying our faith is dead. That's what he says. It's useless unless it's lived out. My car, it has a battery in it. But it's useless because it's dead. See, a lot of confusion between James' central message that living as a disciple of Christ involves living out of faith and Paul's teaching that you can't earn your way into heaven comes when we don't understand what each of these guys mean when they talk about faith and works. I found a chart that actually makes this a little bit easier to understand. You're going to see up here on the screen. So when Paul's talking about faith and works, he's saying faith is trusting God enough to do what he says. And works, when Paul's talking about works, he's talking about the Old Testament sacrifices and the laws, the checklist of things that you must do. And James, when he's talking about faith, he's talking about your intellectual belief, something that you think in your head. When he talks about works, he's talking about obedience. See, James, or Paul is talking to a group of believers in his scriptures that are all about the checklist They're all about doing the right things without the heart of what matters. And James is the opposite. He's speaking to a group of people who they're saying it doesn't matter what you do, it only matters just if you think the right things. James is saying, No, you have to have a faith that works. One commentator summed it up this way it said, It's not a faith, it's not faith and works that save you. It's not faith or works, it's a faith that works. That's the title of our series, James, A Faith That Works. So let's look at verse 14. James says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, so belief, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? And then he proposes this this hypothetical situation. He says, Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, Goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. And then actually, you come and you study that phrase a little bit. That's a phrase that was said kind of like ours. Have a nice day. God bless you. And he's presenting this ridiculous situation. You see someone who, it doesn't say they don't have a little. They have nothing. They don't have clothes for their back. They don't have food. They're starving. And you say, have a nice day. He says, how ridiculous is that? He says, what good does that do? So you see faith by itself, belief by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds it's dead and useless it's dead and useless and here's our first point dead faith doesn't work it's a little play on words there see if you can figure that out if your faith is dead it doesn't work it doesn't function it's useless but also dead faith doesn't have works dead faith doesn't work a young boy was on an errand with his mother and he just bought a dozen eggs at the grocery store. And He was really excited and he, he made this trip and he, he, mom sent him in and he did it all by himself. And as he was walking away after he paid for them, he tripped and dropped the eggs. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced that before. I have. And one doesn't break, they all break. And the sidewalk was a mess. And the boy started to cry. And all these people gathered around, oh, we're so sorry that your eggs broke. Oh, that's so bad. They said, Don't worry, it's okay. But in the midst of those words of pity, one man took out his wallet, handed the kid a dollar bill. And he turned to the group and he said, I care one dollar's worth. How much do the rest of you care? Because see, just saying something about it is useless. Offering words of, "Oh, sorry that happened, but no, we need to have a faith that is in action, the belief that we have lived out to the world around us. We see this very same principle in First John. First John chapter three, it says, "If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? It's a rhetorical question, right? He's saying it can't be. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. See, James wants us to see that kind of faith. It's absurd. I'm actually going to put it in quotation marks, air quotes. That kind of faith, it's just useless. You might think something, but if it doesn't go from your head to your heart to your hands, it's pointless. And in the very next verse, James anticipates what some of the arguments will be. In verse 18, he says, Now someone may argue, Well, some people have faith and others have good deeds. See, this is often the way we try to justify things, right? Well, I'm not that kind of person. That person, they're the servant-hearted one. I'll take care of this area. You, You go do that. He says, Some people may say, Well, I have faith. And others, well, I have the deeds. But I say, How can you show me your faith if you don't have any good deeds? He says, I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. You say that you have faith, but you believe, for you believe that there is one God, the Shema. There is one God and none other. Good for you, he says. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless, or he'll later on say, dead? See, here we clearly see what James is talking about when he's saying faith. It's an intellectual belief. He says, even the demons believe in God. That doesn't get you further ahead. That doesn't somehow make you right with God because you believe that he exists. Even the demons believe in God. It says, but they actually at least do something. It says, they shudder. You're useless without the actions, without the deeds, without the fuel of your faith living out in the world around you. At least the demons are doing something they recognize it and they shudder. Dead faith doesn't work. It's useless. And James then gives us two examples of this kind of faith being lived out, faith in action. The first is Abraham. Uh, most of us have probably heard of Abraham before, whether it was in Sunday school or you sang that song. Remember, Father Abraham had many sons, in right arm, left arm, right. So I, if you don't know the story of Abraham, you go look in the Old Testament and you'll see. But this is what it says in verse 21 it says don't you remember that our ancestor abraham was shown to be right with god by his actions when he offered his son isaac on the altar so if you remember this story abraham had been told decades earlier this is already an old guy he'd been told decades earlier that he would have a son and that through that son the jewish people would conquer the world in many ways he would become God's people, his holy people. And Abraham thought that's impossible, but he had faith. And then years and years and years later, after Isaac had been born, Isaac wasn't a baby anymore. He, he went with his father, and, and God told Abraham, Sacrifice your son. And it says, wasn't Abraham shown right by God, by his actions, when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You remember moments before, Abraham did this before he lived out his faith that he had pro- been proclaiming for years and that God had counted to him his righteousness years prior, but he had lived it out right when he was about to live it out. God stopped him. He says, you see, his faith and his actions, they work together. His actions made his faith complete. See, he believed this way back then, but it wasn't until the rubber met the road that it was mature. That's what complete means, mature. James goes on, And so as it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Remember, James is talking about faith. He's talking about this belief, this intellectual belief. Now, ironically, the story of Abraham is the same story that Paul uses when he talks about faith. It was Abraham's faith that had been growing since God first made him that promise of a son that fueled his actions, his works, his willing to be able to sacrifice his son. And we might think, well, that's Abraham, right? He's like the patriarch. I can never be like that. And God hasn't asked me to sacrifice my son. That kind of faith and works are out of my league. So James gives us another example. He says, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and set them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. He gives us example, this shining example of Father Abraham who lived this entire lifetime of faith and then demonstrated that faith through his works, through his action, his obedience to God. And then he gives us another example of Rahab the prostitute Now, if you've been in church, you might know who Rahab is, but that's not a Bible character a lot of people know. And Rahab doesn't come from the same lineage that Abraham does in terms of uh, this great pedigree or anything. Rahab is a prostitute. She's a nobody. If it wasn't for a little story in the Old Testament, we wouldn't know who Rahab is. But Rahab had faith. wasn't even part of the children of God at that moment and had faith in who God was and lived out that faith in the actions as she hid these spies and sent off the enemy in a different direction. See, faith without works, faith without deeds is dead. It's useless. Now, Rahab's faith is just as real as Abraham's was. They both matter. And I think James used these two heroes of the faith one patriarch and one of the Jewish people and one of history's most prominent figures and an outcast prostitute many people have never heard of. I think he used both of these two to make a point. That's what we see in the beginning of chapter 2, that God doesn't show favoritism. We see this throughout Scripture. Romans 2.11 says, For God does not show favoritism. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 10, we see, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great Lord, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality. Another word for favoritism. and accepts no bribes. Rahab's faith mattered just as much as Abraham's. And that leads us back to the beginning of chapter 2. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? Then James gives us an example of how this can play out in church. And maybe this was a hypothetical situation, or maybe this was something that was actually happening. It very well could have been, and it doesn't really matter. It's an example for us. He says, for example, suppose someone comes to your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or go sit in back on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? So James is saying there are some people walking into church and it's obvious that they've got some things going on, right? They look amazing. We know that they're wealthy. We know that they're prestigious. They're important. They've got jewelry and fancy clothes, and they're put together. And the ushers, they start giving them special attention and getting them the best seats in the house. Now, back then, they didn't have seats like we have seats. We've got these nice padded seats, right? They're comfortable. Some of you are sleeping right now because they're so comfortable. And they're all the same, Right, we don't have certain seats that are better quality than others. Contrary to what some of you think, they're all the same seats. But everyone in that time didn't have a seat. Many of you grew up into a church or grew up going to a church where you had solid wood pews. You guys remember those? And they weren't comfortable. If you were lucky, once you'd upgraded, there was like a pad. Right before that, it was just these slabs of wood. So they didn't have the same kind of seats we have not in the first century temple there was limited seating not everyone got a seat and actually in some circumstances some people actually did buy their seats they paid to have a certain seat in the temple now some of you think that you paid to have a certain seat too but that's not the way it works right you ever had somebody come in and like excuse me you're sitting in my seat uh, this is a little aside here. I was at a church one time years and years ago where they labeled everything. Like everything that had, somebody had donated to church, they put their name on it. And so it really was like you'd sit there and it would have somebody's name on the seat, like donated by. So you could come in like, sorry, that's my seat. I paid for that seat. Well, as we're going to see, that's not what James is trying to talk about here. Now, it's actually a bit different for us today because no one in our churches now wants to sit in the good seats right i mean look at this you got one yeah you, he's got the front row oh is this empty what are the seats that fill up first at church he's as far away from me as you can possibly get try not to take it personal i do shower but think about a basketball game or a concert People want the good seats. They pay for the good seats. They're the ones that are up front. And who are they for? The people who can afford them. Not me. Maybe not you. Who sits at the court side of the game. Celebrities. The people of importance in the world. And James says, If you show favor to some people over others, you are committing a sin. He just flat out says it. There's no place for that in church, he says, among God's people, to be treating people differently. He says, You're breaking the law. And here, James echoes his brother, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount. It might not seem like a big deal. This is just somebody came in and they're just showing them preferential treatment. But when you treat people with favoritism, you're not living or you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. And he says, You're breaking the law. Here's our second point favoritism is foreign to faith. There's three F's for you. Favoritism is foreign to faith. If you have a faith that works, a faith that isn't dead, you can't have favoritism. It has no place in the life of a Christ follower, especially not in the church. You can't have a faith that works and treat people with partiality. The King James Version of this passage actually says God is no respecter of persons. it's a phrase we don't use very often, but to, to God, Abraham was just as righteous as Rahab was. Here's what we mean by favoritism. Favoritism is inconsistent love for other people in how we treat them. We don't treat people the same. It's inconsistent love for other people in how we treat them. That's favoritism. And this is something we all struggle with. None of us have this all on lock. Remember last week, James tells us as we look into the mirror, the perfect word of God, the more we look, the more we see. And there are times when we're going to look at our lives and see that we don't reflect Jesus. Peter, one of the apostles, struggled with favoritism. The guy who Jesus said would help build his church. We see in Acts chapter 10 the story of Peter at Cornelius' house. And if you're not familiar with this story, you can read it later on today. Acts chapter 10, it's a cool story. But Peter was Jewish and he followed the rules and the laws of the Jewish people. That certain foods were unclean, you couldn't do certain things. And, and Peter was guilty of showing favoritism to those who were not following that. To non-Jews, Gentiles, us, Everyone else with the same love and care and concern that Jesus himself had instructed them. He said, you guys are my people too. And Peter, he had a series of visions. And through God speaking to Peter, he saw that he was wrong. That he had been showing favoritism based on things that didn't matter to God. Acts chapter 10, 24 it says, Then Peter began to speak. He said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Once again, we see here their faith and actions. But it's easy for us to think, yeah, James, those type of people are awful. I mean, we don't want people come in here and be like, oh, you've got some money. You just come sit over here. I'll show you some special attention. But how else do we struggle with favoritism Prejudice or discrimination, even here in the church. Maybe it's a negative bias towards those who aren't in the same socioeconomic bracket as us. We want to think that doesn't happen, but it does. We look at people and we make a judgment sometimes based on their appearance. That's prejudice, right? Pre judging them. When you see someone struggling financially, is your first thought, how can I help them? How can I love my neighbor? Or is it, what do they do to get themselves in that situation? Or it's a negative bias we have towards a certain ethnicity. We give greater honor to people who have certain gifts that our culture celebrates. Even here at church, we do this often. We might treat the person who has a great voice better than the person who makes the coffee. But both are using their gifts to serve God. And I might argue at 9 o'clock a.m., the coffee is maybe more important than the person with a great voice. (laughs) I'm not saying we don't give honor where honor is due. Honestly, it would be great if we gave everyone who walks through our doors the royal treatment. But favoritism is foreign to faith. Do we give preferential treatment to those who are successful in business? We treat them differently because, well, they must have their life together. Do you show partiality to those who vote different than you? At the height of COVID and all the political junk that was going on a few years back, I would hear story after story. someone would be online. someone would be from people I actually knew whose families over the holidays would exclude certain family members from gifts or parties because they voted differently than they did. James uses the rich and the poor as an example of favoritism, which, remember, is inconsistent love for others that is demonstrated in how we treat someone. But that's not the only way this plays out. How often do we label people to set them apart or to set ourselves apart? We often label people to segregate and rank even without thinking about it. Oh, that's the guy who has the perfect lawn. He just likes to show off. Or that's the guy who never mows his lawn. He's just lazy. That's the girl who can't seem to hold down a relationship. I wonder what's wrong with her. Look at that woman's social media posts. She's just always bragging about her kids. She's so full of herself. That's the guy who has something going wrong in his life for some reason. Why do we label people in this way? Why do we think we're to put some kind of barrier between us and someone else? Because the way we think about someone often comes out of the way we treat them. They're too fat, they're too thin. What's wrong with them? Why can't they get their act together? I want to share a video with you from a good friend of mine. Her name is Megan, and she was a member of the church that I served at before serving here. And Megan was part of a team that I was part of, my wife was part of, of staff and volunteers who would plan out our teaching and work on our teaching. So she was highly integrated into what we were doing. Although she wasn't up front, She worked behind the scenes in an incredibly important area in our church. But each Sunday, you'd find Megan sitting in a row all by herself. We were doing a teaching series on how we treated others, and she shared her story with us. I'd like to show you a little bit of Megan's story here.
3: Hi, my name is Megan Potter. I've been coming to Christ the Rock for about 12 years now, and I'd like to share with you what some of my experiences as a single woman have been in this church. And sometimes it's felt a little bit like I'm Forrest Gump. At the beginning of the movie, when he's a kid and he gets on the school bus, and as he walks past every seat, the kids go, seats taken, and they move over. And it feels a little bit like that, being a single woman in the church sometimes. It feels like people wanna be with people they have something in common with, and in the church, marriage and family is a huge area of common ground. I recently went through a time in my life when I was really looking to reconnect with people and experience a greater depth of community. So I looked around at different small groups and I asked people, you know, does your small group have an opening and or do you know of any small groups? And a lot of the responses that I got were, well, our small group is for couples. Our small group is for families with young children having that connection with someone and having that commonality is a great thing to cherish and it's a a wonderful thing to include but at the same time it just made me feel oh you don't you don't fit into our mold and you we don't have a place for you here and I would never want someone to feel that there's not a place for them and so maybe you know you've been married for 30 years and it's been a long time since you had someone in your social circle that was single or maybe you are a new mom and you are just looking for someone who wants to get out of the house and go to target with you wherever it may be whether it's in your job or right here in the worship center or out there in the lobby i would just encourage you to have a look out open your eyes and, and really think who is that person who is lonely who is that person who maybe is sitting at home on a Saturday night by themselves? Who is that person that doesn't have a place to go on the holidays? And can you then stretch yourself to invite them over, to ask them out for coffee, and to see what their perspective on life is like?
2: And often felt alone. At the one place that she should have been most welcomed with open arms, she often felt excluded like she was passed over. Forrest Gump, having to sit in the back of the bus. Now, our church never sat out to show favoritism to couples or exclude singles, and we don't hear either, but the truth is we were, and Megan felt it. And I remember telling Megan that after we showed this video, there was going to be a line of people waiting to sit with her the next Sunday. But guess what? There wasn't. Next Sunday, she sat by herself again. And you'd think the very next Sunday, she'd be flooded with invitations to lunch and to hang out, but she wasn't. And before you think, man, that church is horrible. So unfriendly. I was there for many years, and yes, it was easy for some people to slip through the cracks, but Seymour Christian, there are probably people in this room who have felt the same way. It's so much easier to have a faith that isn't lived out. And James is telling us, if the extent of our faith is all up here, then we might be saved, but we're not alive. Our faith is useless. It's dead. We're doers of the word, or we're hearers of the word, but not doers, as we saw last week. See, dead faith doesn't work, and favoritism is foreign to faith. It's a sin when we treat others with inconsistency based on the labels that we've created. I heard a preacher share this statement and it really stuck with me. There are only two people in the world who have the right to label anything. The manufacturer and the purchaser. The manufacturer of my car is Honda. They labeled our car fit. But I'm the purchaser And we call it squattacy because it's a shrunk down odyssey if you've seen my car. Some of you call it a clown car. When it comes to people, God is the manufacturer and the purchaser. He's the manufacturer and the purchaser. We have no right to label anything other than what God has labeled them. We sang about this earlier in what he calls us, chosen, not forsaken, his child. I am a child of God. He made us and he purchased us. He bought us back from the sin that, as Hebrews says, so easily entangles us. See, it's so easy for us to fall into the trap that James is warning us about, to be hearers but not doers, having a dead faith. Now, each week we have time in our service to remember our maker and our purchaser. We take communion to take those two truths, to remember those two truths and remind our heads and our hearts of them. If you've got your communion, let's go ahead and take that out. If you didn't pick it up on your way in, there's some in the back here at the table. We take communion to keep those two truths in the forefront of our life, that God is our maker and our purchaser. No matter where we came from, no matter the size of our bank account, our gender, our social status, our ethnicity, no matter our past, God has made us in His image. And sin caused us to be separated from our Maker. But God purchased us back. He bought us back with the blood of His only Son, Jesus. He went through with that sacrifice. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, You see, at just the right time when we were still sinless, Christ died for the ungodly. Who is that? Them? Who's the ungodly? It was us. He says, no, now you're chosen. You're not forsaken. You are my child. I've bought you back. I made you and I bought you. No one else gets to label you. Don't treat other people with partiality. Don't show favoritism to certain people because I don't do that. That old saying, right, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Kind of sounds similar to what we read in James chapter 13. But if you've been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So I want to ask you to take your communion. Let's take the cracker this morning. This reminds us of the body of Jesus that was given for us, that was broken for us. Let's take this and eat. We take the cup. That reminds us that we were made in His image but we were bought with the price of his blood on the cross. Let's take this together. There's more happening when we take communion than just a reminder of the sacrifice. It's a reminder of the truth that this blood now is within us, that the Spirit of God resides in everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So how dare we show favoritism, partiality to those around us when we all have the Spirit of God within us? We're able to experience what we just did, to be reminded of that sacrifice because of God's amazing grace. We're going to close singing a song here this morning that we all know. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. That's a word we don't use very often, is it? But that's where we all were. But that's not where we are, none of us. Because God has purchased us with his blood. His mercy triumphed over the judgment. So let's stand together. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to sing this song together amazing grace. God, I thank you. We've been able to share in communion together this morning a reminder that you are our maker and our purchaser, and you did that, Lord, because of the love that you have for each and every one of us. Those of us who have lived what we might say is a Christian life for decades, and those of us who may be walking here today and say, I'm so messed up. God, you love and your grace is there for each and every one of us. God, we thank you that you don't show favoritism to us, but you do show us favor that you accept us, that you love us, you've grafted us back into the body of Christ, that we could live as your children. God, may we never be people who are showing partiality to those around us. May the world look at us and see people who love extravagantly as you do. So God, we thank you for your amazing grace that saves us, that makes us whole we celebrate that here this morning, Lord, as we end our time together. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and the church together said, amen. Amen. Let's worship together.